0: Has anybody ever uh, played the game Clue? you ever played that game? Uh, you know, it's that wonderful classic game. And you, you use your investigative genius to try to decipher who done it, right? Who's the guilty party? Um, was it Colonel Mustard in the conservatory? In the robe? Was it Professor Plum in the kitchen? With the lead pipe? We don't know. But we ask questions of the people playing the game, right? We ask those questions. We try to figure out who is the guilty party and we decipher it. I like a fun game of clue. I like, I like murder mystery movies. I like, I like to watch those things because I like to try to figure out who did it. I like to, Jenny would probably say I'm annoying to watch those movies with because the whole time through it, I'm saying that they're the ones they, and I'm trying to guess who it is because I want to be right before they revealed at the end of the movie. You know, anytime I've seen, like when we've been on vacation, we were in uh, Tennessee this uh, um, a couple of weeks ago and we were riding down the road and I saw this place, Murder Mystery Dinner. I, I've told her before, I think those would be fun to go to. Not because I'm some demented psycho who likes murder. That's not the case whatsoever. I like a good, just something to challenge my my mind and, and try to figure out something, right? Asking questions, trying to decipher what's going on, what what took place. There was an, there was an author by the name of uh, Chuck Klosterman. He wrote this essay that he called The Light... Who has lighted the world. And basically, in this essay, he's using an allegory to try to explain uh, what he believes to be the nature of all religious belief. He says that there are many people across our nation uh, that believe in Jesus Christ, and they, they have this faith that they call Christianity. But he says a large majority of those that say they have faith, they have nothing to produce. A reason or a, an existence or a proof that says they be, uh, uh, to define what they believe so he says this about Christianity he says it's all just a hunch it's a piece of information he says that you file in a case book but there's nothing there that warrants any reasonable conclusion for their faith is that what Christianity is? Is Christianity just a hunch? We're in week two of this series. We're calling it the summer, our summer reading series because we're, we're looking at a book. We're gleaning from a book that was written by a pastor and author. His name is Wade Bearden. The book is called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. And basically it's uh, Wade talking to a friend of his he grew up with. They went to high school together. They went to church together. When they graduated, they both went their separate ways. And Wade ended up going into ministry. His friend ended up walking away completely from faith, walking away from the church, and the whole point of this series is kind of twofold. We talked last week and, and described this popularity of the term deconstructing and deconstructing faith, deconstructing the church, deconstructing Christianity, and we looked at these different uh, these different things. And so, the point of this is kind of two sides: it's to to talk to those of us who are in in Christ, who are in the church, who who may know people who are doing this, who are deconstructing, who are asking. Questions and to say, okay, how do we respond to them and how do we respond well? The other aspect is maybe you're one who is doing this. You're asking these questions and you're quote unquote deconstructing. So, my hope is to give you some things, not everything, but to give you some things to think about as you're doing that. Bearden makes this comment about deconstruction in his book. He says, The point of deconstructing faith is so that we learn how to reassemble it. That should be the point point of deconstructing anything. I I, I saw this uh, and, uh, and about this article, so I went and I looked it up, and it's fascinating. It's The Smithsonian Magazine had a cover story where they talked about this shrine in Japan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name of the shrine right, but it's Ice Jingu is how it looks like it's pronounced. Basically, every 20 years for the past 1,300 years, they take this shrine, and I brought a picture of it. They take this shrine, and they deconstruct it and then reassemble it. And the whole reason they do this every 20 years for the last 1,300 years is so that they don't forget the techniques that were used to assemble the structure. And there's a note inside the visitor center at the shrine. And the note says this. It said, it also involves the wish that Japanese traditional culture should be transmitted to the next generation. So the whole reason they deconstruct this structure and rebuild it is so they don't forget the the, the detail behind what built it in the first place and the next generation can continue to learn the same thing. Bearden made this comment. He says, if we're not careful, lazy thinking will keep us trapped. We believe in what was built, but we don't really know the ins and outs of the architecture. We don't know how it came to us. And then he says this, thinking is hard and often Christians don't want to do it. Thinking is hard. That's why I tell people when they when they say to me, "I was thinking," and I say, "Well, don't hurt yourself," because thinking is hard, right? There's a there's a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel uh, Kahneman. He wrote in a book, Thinking, Fast and Slow, and he's talking about how people don't like to think. They don't like to use their minds to think hard about things. And he referenced a math problem. Right, everybody, we all love math problems, don't we? Yay, math in church. He says a bat and a ball cost a dollar and ten cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now, how many of you would say 10 cent? Real quick, raise your hand, 10 cent. We got a couple of hands that are shyly going up. How many of you would say 5 cent? No one wants, because none of you are confident enough to think about the answer to this question. And that's that's Kahneman's point. He points out how most people get it wrong because they don't want to spend a lot of time thinking. And they will say, they'll say the answer is 10 cent. But that's not the answer. The answer is 5 cent. He says this about people. He says, people find cognitive effort at least mildly unpleasant, and they avoid it as much as possible. You may sit and think to yourself, that's true. I do. I don't want to. I do that. When I get in a situation where I got a thing long and hard about it, I'll need people to stop talking. Right? Stop talking so I can think. Right? Because it's It's difficult. And how often are we afraid of thinking when it comes to our faith? How often are we afraid of the questions that rise up in us? And we're like, where did that come from? How often are we afraid of the questions that we get asked because we feel like we can't provide the answer for those questions? Maybe you remember the account I talked about back in the series uh, starts here. and, And I talked about Peter when he started walking on water, this incredible act of faith. He's walking on water towards Jesus and he's focused on Jesus. And all of a sudden the circumstances around him, the storm, he focuses on that. He takes his eyes off Jesus and this incredible act of faith that's taking place. And he sinks in the water. Jesus grabs his hand. And what's the question that Jesus asked him? Why did you doubt? We're afraid to ask people that question. Because we're afraid of the questions might, they might ask us back. But Jesus asked Peter, he said, why did you doubt? Listen, some people leave the church, they leave the faith, they walk away from the faith, not because God isn't good. They walk away because they have questions and they don't feel safe asking them. They don't believe that they can safely express their doubt and the questions that they have. And the church... And your home, our my home, should be the safest place for my kids, my family to ask questions. The church should be the safest place for us as a family of believers to and seeking God to ask questions. Your home should be a safe place for your family to ask questions. And we can't look at people who ask questions. We can't look at ourselves. And, and when questions rise and say, How foolish are you? We shouldn't be impatient when people ask us why. Because questions are just an opportunity for growth. Questions are us saying, hey, I have more room for growth in my life. Oswald Chambers said this about doubt. He said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong or thinks he's wrong. It's maybe a sign that he's just thinking There's this small book in the Bible that often that doesn't get referenced a lot. I want us to look at just a couple of verses from today. It's one chapter, is all there is in this book. It's the book of Jude in the New Testament. And I want us to look at verses twenty two and twenty three from that. It says, Jude writes this, he says, You must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Other translations say it this way, to those who doubt. You must show mercy to those who doubt. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy still to others, but do so with great caution. And hating the sins that contaminates their lives. Jude is saying, show mercy to those who doubt. Why? Because here's here's what's happening in doubt. The enemy wants to use your doubt to drive you away from God. The Apostle Paul says that we are constantly under attack from our spiritual enemy, from Satan. Right. He calls it, in Ephesians 6, he says he has flaming arrows that he's constantly shooting at us. Right, He tells the church in Corinth, he says, look, we only see in part. One day we will see in full. It's the reason we have all the questions that we have, because we only see in part. because the, and the enemy wants to take the parts you see and the parts you don't understand, and he wants to drive you away from God. He wants you to think that you're not a real believer because you have questions. He wants you to think that your faith is imperfect. And because it's imperfect, there's no help for you. He wants you to think that none of this about the faith is real. He wants you to think that the church, not just an individual church, but the church as a whole, doesn't care about you. He wants you to think that God doesn't care about you. That God's not real. That God doesn't love you. That there's no way that because of all that you have done, God can ever forgive you. The enemy wants to drive you away from God. And that's why Jude says to be merciful on those who are going through this journey and going through this process. He says, don't crush them. Don't condemn them. Don't be critical. Don't be judgmental. Have compassion. Be merciful. And he says, for some, there's an urgency for some. You use caution. In other words, let's go back to Luke chapter 15, where we were last week. I told you there were three parables in that. The first parable was the parable of where Jesus talks about a shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes after the one. There are some that you immediately go after. But then there's some that you've got to let, like the the father did with the youngest son, take their journey. Why? Because you've got to be merciful. You've got to show, show mercy to them in their doubt. And you have to be merciful with yourself because there's a sin that wants to grab you as well. And you have to avoid that. The enemy wants to use your criticism. And he wants to allow criticism to take you from confidence in your face to cynicism of your faith. He wants to drive you away from God. But here's the good news. God can take your doubt and he can make your faith stronger. He can work through you. The the, the awesome thing about Jude, Jude was a brother of Jesus. He was a half brother of Jesus, just like James. And John in his gospel, John chapter seven, verse five, he tells us that the brothers of Jesus did not believe Jesus was who he proclaimed to be. They mocked him. But Jesus showed mercy to his brothers in their doubt. He let them doubt. And he let them grow through their doubt. There's people that we find all throughout the Jewish history and the early church. When we look at the old Testament, new Testament who had doubts and they took their doubts to God and they grew stronger through that. Jeremiah had doubts that God would be giving him the things to say to the people that God was giving him to say. He doubted this, but he didn't run from the faith because of what the doubt he was struggling with. He went to God about the doubt. Look at it. Jeremiah chapter 20 verses seven to nine. Oh Lord, you misled me. Would you say that to God? He said, Oh Lord, you misled me. I allowed myself to be misled. You're stronger than I am. You overpower me. Now I'm mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me. When I speak the words burst out violence and destruction, I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say, I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. In other words, he's saying, it's hard for me to understand why you would give me all this to say, but because I know it's from you, I can't keep it in. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, the Lord stands beside me like a great warrior. Before my persecutors will stumble. They cannot defeat me. They will fail, be thoroughly humiliated. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. In other words, he can say, even though everybody else around me mocks me because of the words even I can't understand, I'm expressing I'm still going to keep my faith in God. I know he's beside me. I know he's with me. David, most people believe David wrote Psalm chapter 10. And he wrote, he began Psalm 10 by saying, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He wrote Psalm 13 and he started that, that off by saying, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? These are just a couple examples of the the doubts and the questions that David expresses all throughout the Psalms and other writers in the Psalms express. But yet, even though David made all these expressions, the prophet Samuel made a statement about David and uh, and the apostle Paul echoed that statement and said that David was a man after God's own heart. At the end of Psalm 10, David made this statement. The Lord is king forever and ever. At the end of Psalm 13, he says, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. In other words, he's saying, even though I don't feel his love right now, I know his love is unfailing. Even though it doesn't feel like he's being good to me right now, I know he has been good and continues to be good to me. John showed us, and I I talked about John chapter three last week. John showed us that because Nicodemus... Could not understand what Jesus was talking about. He went to Jesus with his questions. He asked his questions to Jesus, and because he sat down, we see later in John chapter 19 that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus Christ because he went with Joseph of Arimathea to collect the body of Jesus and to respectfully put it in a tomb so that it wouldn't just be thrown into a pile of other dead bodies after a crucifixion. No other Pharisee cared about what was going to happen to Jesus' body. Nicodemus cared. Why would he care? Because he understood Jesus was who he said he was. John the Baptist. John the Baptist doubted. Look at this, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. John the Baptist, who was in in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or, should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah, the blind see the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear the dead are raised to life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. John the Baptist. This was the one that was in Elizabeth's womb that leapt with joy. Whenever Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, came to the home to visit her cousin, John the Baptist John the Baptist who stood on that hillside baptizing people. And then when Jesus walked up, he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That John the Baptist who was making those proclamations. John the Baptist who baptized Jesus right before he began his earthly ministry. Jesus did. And when Jesus came up out of the water, John, the Gospel of John tells us that the sky is open. And the Spirit descended like a dove. And John the Baptist watching this. And then here is hears the voice of the Father. This is my Son, whom I am well Please. John the Baptist. Now asking, he's in prison and asking, Are you really the Messiah? Yeah, I know I proclaimed you that. <laughs> Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah because the prophet Isaiah spoke, This is what the Messiah would do. This is what you see me doing. Go back and tell John the Baptist what I'm doing. There's one interesting phrase that when he tells John the Baptist or tells John's disciples to go back to talk to him, there's one interesting phrase that the prophet Isaiah also uses about the Messiah that Jesus leaves out here, but he expresses when he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah in the temple. Are you following me? He he leaves this phrase out. He brings freedom for the prisoner. That's interesting, isn't it? Because John the Baptist is in prison. And John the Baptist had not been freed from prison. And he's questioning, are you the Messiah? Look at what Jesus says next in verse 6. And he added this. He left off that phrase. He added this. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look. Don't allow your thinking of who the Messiah is what the Messiah is supposed to do and hasn't done for you. Don't let that thinking cause you to walk away from me. In other words, just because God doesn't respond to your situation the way you think God should respond to your situation, it doesn't mean he's not God. That's what Jesus is telling John. When Luke wrote his gospel, the gospel account we see, in the New Testament, Luke writes, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. And he writes, says, look at how he writes. Look at how he opens his writing. His first book, Luke chapter one. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write an accurate account for you. Most honorable Theophilus. So that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. He's not saying that his writing is better than uh, these other writings. He's just saying, I want to be one more voice. And so Luke took his uh, investigative abilities to research as a doctor, as a physician. He went and he researched all of time. He talked to all of these eyewitnesses who were with Jesus when he was around, when he walked this earth. He He then followed those in the early church when he wrote the book of Acts. That's what he was doing. He followed those in the early church, the birth of this movement. And he writes back to Theophilus to tell him, all these events that you've heard about, about this man, Jesus, all these events, and ultimately the event, it's all real. It's all real. And Luke helps Theophilus avoid cynicism by giving him certainty. He wants him to be certain that the events are real. And the event is real. What is the event? It's the event that everything about the faith boils down to. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul took a moment in his first letter to the church of Corinth. To Paul's, when he was writing them. It was a difficult letter. It was a hard letter. He was bringing uh, uh, instruction to them. He was bringing correction to them because of the things that they were doing, the way they were living, the way they were doing church. And he pauses in this moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We talked about it in our series, the implication of the resurrection after Easter. And he said the reason why he and every follower of Jesus Christ was doing what they did was because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was because of the event that took place. Perhaps the most famous of all doubters is a guy by the name of Thomas. You've probably heard him called Doubting Thomas. That whole nickname comes from what happens right after Jesus' resurrection. John chapter 20. I want us to look at it together. John chapter 20. Start at verse 19. It says this. John writes, he says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And he spoke. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. So they told him, We've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them place my hand into the wound in his side. Then eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hand. Put your hand into the wound, into my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me blessed are those who believe without seeing me. See Thomas, I think Thomas kind of gets a bad rep because he's experiencing what most any of us have probably experienced. He's got people around him talking about how they have experienced Jesus in a way he has not experienced Jesus. And he's like, well, this is fine and dandy. You're talking about the way you've experienced I haven't experienced Jesus in that way. And I'm not going to believe until I experience Jesus in the way that you say you've experienced Jesus. He's telling, look, I'm not going to believe unless I see. And then think about this. The whole reason Peter and all the other boys are believing is because what? They saw. <laughs> right? They saw. John tells us they were there. Thomas wasn't. We don't know where Thomas was at that point in time. Thomas is probably thinking, impeccable timing, Jesus. But the whole reason they believe is because they saw. And Thomas is just saying, you saw, so you believe. I'll believe when I see. We've said this over and over. Thomas, just like most every other Jewish person in that day, they had this expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Yes, he was a conquering king. But they believed the Messiah to be a conquering king who was a ruthless warrior, not a suffering servant. And he was having a hard time accepting what had happened, understanding all that. His mind was blown. His heart was broken. He likely, he wanted to believe. But it was hard. But here's what's interesting. It says that eight days later. Now we can think, well, eight days, that's not that long. But when you're in a moment like this, you think about some of the most difficult moments of your life. Every day can drag sometimes. Eight days later. That means that Thomas kept showing up. Despite his doubts, despite not seeing Jesus the way the others had seen Jesus, he kept showing up. He didn't turn around. He didn't walk away. He didn't go find the other Jewish leaders and say, you know what? You were right. He didn't run away and go to a distant land. He kept showing up. And then Jesus showed up and he came to Thomas. Thomas. And he didn't give Thomas some long-out explanation, some long drawn out explanation of all that happened and why it happened and the background of what had happened. He just revealed who he was to Thomas. He gave him a revelation of himself. And Thomas went from doubting in one moment to shouting in the next and proclaiming, My Lord and my God. His faith became stronger and it became personal, it became real. And tradition tells us that Thomas would go on for the next 40 years preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ until 72 AD when he was murdered in India because he wouldn't stop talking about his faith. He wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. Why would he not back down from it? The same reason that Paul and every other follower of Jesus Christ in that early church wouldn't back away. Because Jesus Christ was dead, he was buried, and then he was resurrected and he was seen. The resurrection validated the truth of who Jesus was. And it validated everything that Jesus had proclaimed. Again, when we look we, when we looked at this in our series, The Implication of the Resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we talked about this creed that Paul mentioned. It was a creed that was very important. And it was about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the creed basically says, Christ died for our sins and was buried. He was raised on the third day and was seen. Why is that important? Because a creed like that was immediate. It was immediate. It happened immediately. It wasn't something that was documented decades later. And that's why Paul included it in his letter that was going out decades later. He was putting this creed to say, that creed that began to circulate, it began to circulate immediately. People were walking around saying, Christ died for our sins and was buried. He was raised on the third day and he was seen. He said, it's real. It was immediate. Paul, a Pharisee during the time of Jesus. A Pharisee who did not believe Jesus was who he said he was. A Pharisee that pursued Christians, that arrested Christians, that wanted Christians prosecuted and even killed for what they were proclaiming about a risen Jesus Christ. Paul, that was him as a man named Saul. But then when he witnessed a resurrected Jesus Christ, his whole life changed. He became a new person. The resurrection is what emboldened Paul. It's what emboldened Peter. It's what emboldened James and Jude and Thomas and every other follower of Christ in that early church to proclaim what they proclaim. They believe because of what they saw. Paul listed all of these people in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 telling them they witnessed a resurrected Jesus. Why? Because anybody in the early church could go and find these people and he could ask them what they believed. Go ask uh, the brother James. Go ask Jesus' brother James. Yes, he believes. Because he saw a resurrected Jesus Christ. He's saying our faith has nothing to hide. So go ahead and ask the questions. Our faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Bearden made this statement. He said, when I began digging around in my childhood beliefs, You could say, I began and ended with the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, not just spiritually or allegorically, but physically, everything must change. All religions must bow to Christ. Time, nature, any belief, they must all show their respect. So when looking at your faith, when asking your questions, start with Jesus. And start with the resurrection because how you examine the resurrection will impact the entirety of your faith. And you may say, well, why did someone have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And that's a good question. Because God is a God of justice. We all want justice. When there's something done, we like to see justice for the wrong that was done. And God is a God of justice. So because sin entered the world from the very beginning, God demanded a payment. But here's the goodness of God. Because God is also a God of mercy. He delayed that payment until Jesus, until the time was right for Jesus to come. And then because of His grace, Jesus took the penalty for us. That's just a brief synopsis. And you may say, well... I've got all kinds of questions of what, of when, of why, of how. You may think that the morality that we talk about from the Christian life and the Christian standpoint is wrong. It's outdated. Why would anybody be called to live in such ways? You may say, well, the Bible is just confusing. There's things that my professors in school taught me, and there's things I've seen on the History Channel that will say that the Bible contradicts itself. I, I just don't get it. I can't understand this. There's, 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 I want to believe and There's so many things that are confusing, and I just can't understand it. Listen, whether you want to admit it or not, there are categories in your life for things that you believe and you trust, even though you don't understand everything about them. You believe without fully understanding. Many of us in this room, we drive cars every day. And we don't fully understand every aspect of that car and how it operates. Some of you might be great mechanics, but the majority of us in this room, you know why I know we don't know everything about that car? Because we take our car to a mechanic. But we use that, we drive that car, and we trust that car every day. We don't fully understand everything about it. We'll get on planes and fly across the country and across the world. We don't understand every detail of what makes that plane fly. And how it operates and how it works. But we believe it's going to do it, so we trust it. We get on a thing like this and we type something and press the send for it to go from this to some device somewhere, who knows where, across the world for them to get our message. We don't understand how all that works. We just know we type it, it's flying somewhere up there and it's going. We'll make a phone call from this, it has no cord. It's not connected to a wall. How can something not connect it to a wall? Some of you younger, you're like phones had cords. Yes. <laughs> that's how they worked. Now all of a sudden they don't. We don't know that how, how they we'll type in something, looking for something on that device, not knowing how in the world, but all of a sudden it gives us our answer right there in front of us. We got this AI, Chat GPT, that's working right now. We, people are amazed at how it's doing the things it's doing. We don't know how it's working. We talk to two women named Siri and Alexa all the time. We don't know how they do what they do, but we talk to them. Some of your phones might be going off right now because I said her name. We do it, despite the fact that we can't understand everything about it. We trust it. We believe it is going to work. And you say, "Well, Javen, I don't know how it works, but someone knows how it works exactly." And the same can be said about faith. I wasn't there. I didn't witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but there's a lot of people who did. And there's a lot of people who pursued and birthed the early church and gave their life because they believed that. The author of Hebrews wrote this. He said that our faith is the confidence in what we hope for. What is our hope in? It's in Jesus Christ. He says our faith is the conviction of the things we have not seen. Here's the thing. The Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who Jesus was. The Christian faith is anchored in that event and in the person who's at the center of that event. That's what started a movement. Think about this real quick. Constantine, he was the emperor of Rome, 312 to 327. So the early church had still been gaining momentum and gaining ground for about 300 years before Constantine came into ruling in Rome. Constantine was the one who lifted the restriction of worship in Rome. Constantine embraced Christianity. And Christianity unified his empire. He had to find something to unite his empire around, and it was no longer around the Roman gods. That's how much Christianity had gained influence and had rapidly grown in that time. And what inspired the church to do all that it was doing in that time, despite the horrible persecution around it? What inspired them to do it? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the first 300 years, the greatest debate and the greatest question was, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did He? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter... Jesus' brothers James and Jude and an antagonistic Pharisee by the name of Saul whose life was transformed by resurrected Jesus. All of them and so many more emphatically, emphatically said, yes! Unequivocally, without a doubt, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. In the same way that I told you about Klosterman who had his allegory to talk about how Christian faith is just some investigation that we do and it's put in a case book and all of it's just a hunch. I've talked about this theologian before. His name is N.T. Wright. He wrote a book. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And in it, he offers his own little allegory, his own little modern day parable. And he talks about this king who commanded his archers and his army to shoot the sun with their arrows. He said they aimed their bows at the sun all day. And they shot their arrows. And as you know, they, they did not reach the sun. So they sat down all during the night and they prepared. What are we going to do to to reach the sun with our arrows? How are we going to do this? So they, they made these plans and so the next day they went out and they shot their arrows again. The arrows did not reach the sun. The king was getting frustrated. He was getting angry. And then one of the youngest of soldiers went and sat down beside the king who was sitting at a pond. And he sat down by the king and he looked at the pond and he saw the reflection of the sun in the pond. And he pulled out his little bow and he pulled out his arrow and he drew back, and he shot his arrow at the reflection of the sun. And when it hit the reflection of the sun, the sun shattered into pieces through the ripples of the waves in water. And Wright makes this statement. He says, all the arrows of history cannot reach God. And yet, deep within both Jewish and Christian tradition, there lies this quote-unquote rumor That an image, a reflection of the one true God has appeared within the gravitational field of history. If Jesus Christ predicted his death and his resurrection and he pulled it off, that's something we can believe and follow, even though we don't understand everything about it. If Jesus Christ predicted His death and His resurrection and He pulled it off, then that means that everything Jesus proclaimed about Himself, about Himself as the image of God, about God His Father, everything He proclaimed because of the resurrection, we can trust it. If He predicted His death and His resurrection and He pulled it off, then the way that we are called to live as followers of Christ. That morality that we question. Yes, I am free in Christ. But Paul says, because I'm free, am I free to continue sinning? Should I go on sinning? No. Why? Because there's still a morality that we follow. And even though that morality in question presses against us and it's uncomfortable and we don't like the way that morality presses against us. If Jesus Christ was resurrected, we can trust what he's called us to. For those of us who may know someone who's asking questions, who's doubting, who's seeking for clarity, remember the words of Jude, have mercy on those who doubt. And provide them a safe place to ask questions. Help them where you can. For those doubting. For those asking questions. For those seeking clarity. Start with the life of Jesus Christ. And with his resurrection. Because if his resurrection is real. Despite everything else that is hard to understand. I'm not belittling those questions. Those questions are real. And a lot of the questions are good the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real, then it solidifies a lot. If you choose not to follow Jesus Christ because it's inconvenient, that's understandable. Because following Christ is inconvenient. Jesus said it this way. He said, you have to take up your cross. And it's going to lead you to a lot of sacrifice as well. Because Christianity, following Christ, it requires something of us. It requires something from us. But don't you think if Jesus Christ gave his life the way he did and then he defeated death the way he did, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was buried. That he raised in three days and was seen if he did that, doesn't it make it worth it to follow him? That's what it hinges to. Stand with me this morning. Father, we are so grateful for you and for your resurrection, for Jesus' resurrection. We're so grateful for Jesus Christ and what he did. Jesus, we are so thankful today that you came, you showed us exactly who the Father is. And even though we've got questions still that arise and there's things that are hard to understand and there's debates that happen all around us, the one thing that cannot be disproven (laughs) is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. It's what started a movement that's still going 2,000 years later. Father, we cling to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to worship in just a moment. We're going to have communion in just a moment. Church, I just want you to keep praying for a second. If you're in this room today, you're watching online today. You've had questions throughout but you know, you sense that there's something you're being drawn to. I want you to know today that is the father drawing you to him. He is calling you. And he wants you to follow him. And he wants you to know today that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. And he did that for you. As the author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why? For the curse of sin that was brought to our life. And he, he took on, he scorned the shame that came with that sin. And he did it, not just for a nation, but he did it for the world. And he did it for you. And all we have to do is accept the forgiveness that he's offering us. And say, Jesus, what were we saying in that song earlier, I'm lost. I'm selfish. I chose to follow my own way instead of following what you have laid out for me, what Jesus died for. Just admit without Christ, you're a sinner, you're lost. And just tell him you want to follow him, give your life to him. It's a journey, your problems don't vanish. But the way you see those problems, the way you journey through those problems is different because you were Jesus. So I just encourage you today in this moment to accept the forgiveness of Jesus. Thank Him for His death and His resurrection in your own words and tell Him today you want to follow Him. Father, we thank You for that today.